ask if you could please stand as we, as we approach um, God's holy word out of reverence for it. Again, my, my passage uh, is, is really just, uh, just three verses, uh, Genesis chapter 2, 1 to 3, but, but again, so we can look at one more time at, at the whole of God's first creation week. We'll, we'll read it all together. Um, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And, dark, and, sorry, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let, let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the light, separ sorry, separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of, of, of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. God said that the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. 
and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Well, this morning we're continuing our examination of the creation week by looking at the seventh day. God's work in, in creation reaches a, a crescendo with the creation of man on the sixth day. But the, on the seventh day, the, the first, we find the, the high mark, the climax of that first week, of that creation week. So far in Genesis, we've looked at the work of Almighty God in the first six days with two sets of three days, culminating again in that sixth day with the creation of man and woman. We, we saw how the, those first six days run counter to the, the pagan creation myths that were, were common during the, the days when this was written and, and also the creation myths that are common in our day. Well, the seventh day is also completely different from the pagan creation myths that, that have no counterpart at all with what God does on that day. So exactly how and when God created the heavens and the earth is not the author's main focus in this passage. It's not his main purpose for recording these events. He's calling us to look to the creator and worship him. God's, God's method in this is, is not the main point. Now it's important because, because either, either it happened as, as God's word said it, it did or, or it didn't happen. And if, and if it didn't happen the way, the way God's word said that it happened, then, then, then God's word can't be trusted. Our, our understanding of the, 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 the inerrancy of God's word is, is necessarily called into question. So, so did it happen the way that it says it happened in, in six literal days, or, or didn't it? So many of the foundational doctrines of the Bible are found in these opening chapters of Genesis, so it's vitally important that we get it right. We spoke of the powerful work of Almighty God in creating the heavens and the earth with, with merely a word. God spoke, and it happened. And so as we look around the, the creation that, that, that we see, we, we marvel at, at God's glorious work the, that he, again, made with, with just a word. But with what we see around us, even as, as beautiful as it is, it's fallen. This, this beautiful creation is a fallen creation. Likewise, we, we look at, at human beings gloriously made in the image of God with so much capacity to, to do good. But man is also fallen. Man is, is fallen because of, of the, the, the sin of, of Adam, our first father. But in all of this, there's hope. Because man in God's image points to God bearing man's image. Adam, our first father, points to Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the one who never sinned, the one who obeyed perfectly out of love for his father and love for his people. 
Jesus Christ is, is he for whom for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews, Hebrews 2.9. But the creation of, of man in, in God's image points not only to Christ's first incarnation, it also points to his return. It, it points to, to, to the, the return of Christ and subsequently to our glorification. So, so those first six days, they, they point ahead to what God was going to do in Christ, but it points ahead even further still to the return of Christ, to the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, when, when we will be, we'll be made like Jesus, we will be sinless, we will go to be with Jesus forever. And so we, we see these things, they have their, their foundation in, in just in the, here in the first chapter of Genesis, but also into chapters 2 and 3 and onwards. So again, the, the first six days point ahead, but the seventh day, as we will see, also points ahead. While the first six days of creation demonstrate God's almighty power in, in in creation and, and give hints to, to our redemption, it's on the seventh day where we see even more clearly the almighty mercy of God in rest, in providing rest for his people. So again, God's work in creation re reaches a crescendo with the creation of man on the sixth day, but on the seventh day it rises even higher to, to a climax with the day of rest. Now, the words seventh day are repeated three times in, in chapters two and three, emphasizing just how important this day is. And of the whole week, this is the only day that God blesses and God sanctifies. It's the day that he designates as his Sabbath. But for a day that is so important on God's calendar... Why do so few consider it in our day? Richard Fuller, one of the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention, wrote, there is no rest for the Sabbath. Now, Fuller wrote in the middle of the 19th century, but if disregard for the Sabbath was, was a concern in, in Fuller's day, it has reached a pandemic in our day. In Fuller's day, the, the topic was, was debated and disputed in the public forum, but today, the Sabbath doesn't even enter into the minds of most church members, let alone the minds of society at large. So this morning, we're going to see Almighty God's, what, what Almighty God did on the Sabbath. Having finished his creation on the seventh day, God rested, God blessed, and God sanctified. Those are going to be our main points. Again, God finished, God rested, God blessed and God sanctified. And we're going to touch on some of the, the practical questions as well of, of what is the, the significance of the Sabbath for the life of the, of the Christian today. Is it just like any other day? Or is there something special about it? Or is, is the day Saturday, or like the, the Jews remember? Or is it Sunday? So these are some of the things that we're going to be dealing with. But again, I'm not going to have time to, to go into, into all of this. This, this, this could be the topic of, of many sermons. I just want to focus mainly here on, on, this, on this passage in these three verses. So first of all, we see that God finished. 
Like God finished. It's, look at that in, in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. This is repeated twice. God finished his work. Now the ESV here is actually not the best translation of this. The NASB is actually better. It says that thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts by the seventh day God completed his work which he had done. Now I'm not a Hebrew scholar but my understanding is that the, 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 the Hebrew there reflects that it was finished, that God's work was finished prior to the seventh day and you can see that from the context as well that God rested on the seventh day. God didn't do any of his creative work on the Sabbath. He had completed it prior to the Sabbath. So here we're now in chapter 2, but the chapter break here is, is probably not helpful because this is, this is really all of, of one week. It's, it's, it's all the creation week. And, and here in, in chapter 2-1, we see a bookend for chapter 1-1. Right? If you go back to 1-1, it says, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now in, in uh, 2 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. This is, this is a bookend. It's, it's meant to go together. It fits together as, as part of, of that first creation week. So again, in 1 1, we read that God created the heavens and the earth, and, and now they're completed. Meredith Klein here explains some of what God's doing. He says that God's rest on the seventh day is the consummation of his creative work. As a celebration of the finishing of the world, of the world temple, the Sabbath proclaims the name of the creator to be consummator. So what we're saying is that God has made the heavens and the earth as his throne room. Now, of course, Jesus has always been enthroned over his creation, but now he has a place. He now has a place in, in creation to rule. And notice there that, that uh, the, the writer adds the phrase, all their host. And this looks back at all that God has done in, in filling the, the once empty heavens and the earth with life. It's now full of life. But again, this doesn't just point to itself. It actually points ahead. It points ahead to, to God's, the finishing of, of what God is going to do in the new heavens and the new earth. Just go, turn in your Bible, please, right to the end, to, to Genesis chapter 21. Revelation, Revelation tw chapter 21, thank you. Revelation chapter 21, we see the beginning in verse 1. He's talking about a new heaven and the new earth because the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the, the sea was no more. So all the glorious things that God created in those, those first, first six days have burned up. They burned up. You can, you can talk to your Jehovah's Witness door knockers about that. But now in verses 5 and 6, we read, He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. He said, write this down, for it's trustworthy. These things are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so what, what's happening here is, is that, that first account of, of Genesis, this being it is finished, now points ahead to when the new heavens and the new earth are finished. And when God's work is really fully and finally completed. So when we look at the, at the storyline of the Bible, there, there's an, an, an anticipation and an expectation of what God is going to do of his final work. 
This expectation is, is shared not just with us, but, but by the whole of creation as the, the creation groans with, with pains of childbirth, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. That's our glorification. You can see that in Romans 8, 19 to 22. So God finished, or God was finished on the seventh day. Well, next we see that God rested on the seventh day. Again, you can see this two times in verses, uh, in verses 2 and 3. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And verse 3, and on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Again, when there's repetition like this in your Bible, this is, they, they didn't have bold and, and underlined fonts in that day. This is an emphasis. The repetition is there to, to draw attention to what God is, is saying here. Now, the word that's, that's translated rested is Shabbat, from which we get the transliteration Sabbath, which also means to cease. God ceased from his creative work. And that God had completed the, the heavens and the earth, and we see, we see God resting here. God is not inactive. This rest doesn't mean that God is doing nothing. He's continuing to sustain and to nurture his creation. If God did nothing, the entire universe would just be nothing. But God is working to sustain his creation. He's caring for it. And God was satisfied with the work that he accomplished in creation, so he rested. Again, from Meredith Klein, God created the heaven the heavens and the earth to be his cosmic palace. And according to his resting, in an, to, uh, it's an occupying of his palace. It's a royal session. So the, dawn, the dawning of the Sabbath witnesses a new enthronement of Elohim. Again, as we saw earlier, Jesus is, now has a place for which to reign. The Godhead now has a place from which to reign. And so God stops to enjoy what he has created. But again, we've been looking through, as we, as we track through this, we've been comparing th this creation story, this account of creation, we've been comparing it with the pagan religions of, of, of that day, and, and specifically with the Enuma Elish, which is the, the Babylonian uh, creation myth that, that was, was in that same region. And, and there's a lot of scholars today, again, that, that, that draw out the... The, the, they, they say how similar they are, but, but as we've looked at it, we've seen again and again just how vastly different the, the creation account from Genesis is to everything that the, the pagans had. The, the observance of the Sabbath was unique to God and, and, to, the, and to his people. In the, the Enuma Elish and the, also in the Atrahasis, the, the gods rest after the creation of man because man is now there to do the menial work that God had once, the, the gods had once done. So what it's saying is that, okay, now we can rest because we, and now we have man to do all the slave work. That is so contrary to what we see here in, in Genesis 2, 1 to 3. But, but this, this, the Sabbath, then, is, it's not just a creation of work, but, but it's a celebration of work. Al Mohler says it like this. He says, God's resting speaks of his satisfaction in himself. It's God's pause to be satisfied in what he has done. He has completed what he set out to do, so he declared his verdict that it was very good by the time he created man and woman, and then he rested. 
Muller says this is not God taking a nap. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep, but he does pause to be satisfied in himself. Do you see what, what Muller is saying here? He's saying that God's rest is a pause to be satisfied in himself. And he's inviting us to do the same. He's inviting us to rest, to pause, and to be satisfied in him. Again, like we said to the kids, God did not need to rest. It's not as though there was, was physical exertion when, when God created the heavens and the earth. He just said it, and it happened. He's the omnipotent one. But he rested on the seventh day to, to establish a pattern for us to follow. Philip Ryken says it simply, we are called to work and rest because we serve a working and resting God. So we, we see God resting here, but as Donald Gray Barnhouse says, not for long. God's resting here, but not for long, because as soon as man sinned, God went to work again. The Lord Jesus Christ declared, My Father is working until now, and I am working. John 5, 17. So God is working for redemption. One thing I'd like just to, to note here is that there's no refrain. With all the other days, we, we read that there's evening and there's morning the first day and the second day. Well, there, it doesn't say here at all there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. And most theologians, many theologians, believe that the absence of the refrain implies that creation was intended to enjoy a perpetual rest provided by God. But that rest was disrupted by human sin. But nonetheless, rest is offered. God's rest on the seventh day points ahead to a greater rest. That rest is offered in Jesus Christ. Please turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 3. The Hebrews chapter 3. And uh, we'll look at, at verse, very quickly, verses uh, 7 uh, from chapter 3 all the way to, uh, to uh, verse 11 of chapter 4. Now, this, in this passage here, the, the, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95. It was read for us earlier. This passage provides a warning for us from the history of Israel. Those who hardened their hearts against God in the wilderness were not allowed to enter God's rest. And so the warning here in verse 12 is, is to be careful, to take care th that like so many in Israel, you do not have an evil, unbelieving heart. It's a call to examine yourself, to examine your heart before the Lord, to see if you really have entered God's rest. But again, the, the offer still stands. Look, look at 4.1. The, the promise of rest is still being held out. God is enter, inviting us to enter his rest. Therefore, while the promise of entering still stands, let us fear lest any of you should, should seem to have failed to reach it. Now in verse 4, the writer quotes Genesis 2.2. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Yet from verse 5, some will not enter that rest. But again, there's, there remains a rest for those to enter into it. From, from verse 6, 
So finally then he says, let us strive therefore to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now that sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Two, two words that don't go together. To strive to enter rest. But, but by this, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that, that we cease from all fleshly efforts. We cease from our work. But strive to obey in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, so to be a Christian means to, to believe that, that Christ has done all of the work for you. To be a Christian is, is to understand that, that, that you could never, ever, ever live up to what God calls you to. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. None of us have done that ever, not even for our, in our best moments. But Christ did it for us. He worked for us. Christ fully obeyed God's commands, all of them. And so when we turn to him in, in faith and repentance, all of our wicked deeds are, are transferred to his account and all of his righteous works are, are counted to ours. And so, so we don't have to work for our salvation because it has been achieved for us in Christ. This is the greater rest of the Sabbath that, that that first Sunday, or first Saturday rather, points to. The rest that we have and can have in Christ. So then the writer of Hebrews shows us how God's rest from, from chapter 2 of Genesis holds a promise for believers to experience again rest in Christ. Now, now when we look at, at this passage in, in light of, of the, the whole of God's word and this, this striving to enter God's rest, we, we realize that, that in part we have received this rest. We are in Christ have received that rest, but we have not yet fully received that rest. We, we live in, the, in the, the tension between the, the already, not yet. This has been, everything has been achieved for us in Christ, but it will not be finally completed until our glorification at the return of Christ. So again, it's the, there's the already, but the not yet. And just look back for one second, Hebrews 4.9. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So when we, when we have the Sabbath, we have an opportunity to, to look back at what Christ has done for us, but it is also an opportunity to look ahead to what he will do for us in the future. Now back in Genesis 2-3, we see the next thing that God did on the seventh day. God blessed. On the fifth day in, in Genesis 1.22, God blessed the creatures of the sea and sky, calling, to, calling them to be fruitful and multiply. And then on the sixth day, he confers the same blessing on, on the man and the woman in Genesis 1.28. But now God does something different. Now God blesses a day. The other days were, were pronounced good and very good, but this one is blessed. Look at the beginning, the beginning of verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day. God blessed this, this day. This is unique. God gave this day to be a blessing. Please turn with me in your Bible to Genesis uh, chapter, sorry, to, did it again, to Deuteronomy chapter 5. 
Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. Here we have the, the second giving of the law just prior to the people of Israel entering the promised land. We'll, we'll look at Exodus 20 and the first giving, giving of the law in a moment. But, but here, Deuteronomy 5, 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You can see from this that the Sabbath is, is not merely a ceremonial law. It's also moral law. It's meant to be a blessing. It's to provide an opportunity again to rest and to be satisfied in God. And in providing the day, it's, it's not just a command. To, it's, it's a command also to, to the servants. It's to give them an opportunity also to rest. Even animals are given an opportunity to rest. And in this, Israel was, was reminded that they were once slaves. When they were slaves in Egypt, they were not able to rest. They were made to work every day. And so God is calling them back to remind them that they are no longer slaves. That they are no longer slaves. And that, so they are to rest themselves and to give the people who work for them an opportunity to rest. Now, employers in our day would do well to learn from this. I remember when I was a kid growing up in Ontario, the stores weren't open on Sundays, except for, for a few like pharmacies and, and convenience stores. Now, now, that only changed in 1992. With most stores closed, both employers and employees were given an opportunity to be able to go to church on Sunday. They were given the opportunity to, to be able to, to spend time with their family. You know, on that day as well, well in, in the past, my, my grandmothers would do much of the, of the prep for, for, their, for the Sunday meals on Saturday. And I don't think my grandmothers were, were Christians. This was just a part of the culture at that time. The Sabbath was meant to be a blessing. It was meant to be a blessing. And here's where the Pharisees get it wrong. In the incarnation of Christ, he, he directly and intentionally again and again confronted the false teaching of the Pharisees. In the Mishnah, they had added all kinds of laws, man-made laws, to God's law in an attempt to protect themselves from breaking the law. They had 39 separate rules for what you could not do on the Sabbath. And that continues to this day. If you go to Israel, in, in the hotels, they have, they have Sabbath elevators because it's, it's considered to be, to be work to push a button so the, the elevator stops on every single floor. So people either, either do that or they, they take the stairs. Now, it seems to me that it's a lot more work to take the stairs than to just push a button. But it's a complete misunderstanding of what God did when he gave people his Sabbath. It was meant to be a blessing. 
And so again and again, in Jesus' life and ministry, he confronted the false teaching of the Pharisees in word and in deed, as he perfectly obeyed God's law as God had intended. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bible to John chapter 9. Just one example, and it happens again and again in, in the life and ministry of Jesus. You know, people say that, that, well, Jesus broke the Sabbath, but he didn't. He broke the Mishnah, the man-made laws that the Pharisees had added to the Sabbath. Here you see Jesus in his, his interaction with a man that is born blind. And, and look at, uh, it's, it's, it's also a living parable how Jesus is the light of the world. But, but look, look at verse 6. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. Have you ever wondered why Jesus spat in the mud and put it on the, eyes, on the man's eyes to heal him? Jesus didn't have to do it that way. It's, he, he, he could just heal him with a, with a word. But why did he do this by spitting in the mud? Spitting in the dirt to make mud? Because he was confronting the Mishnah. Because the Mishnah commanded that you were not allowed to make mud on the Sabbath. And that was in the, in the context of not using mud to make bricks. But Jesus here is confronting, directly confronting, the false teaching of the Pharisees. Or just another example, Luke 6. In Luke 6, verses 6 to 11. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. Now listen, watch the scribes and the Pharisees. They watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And then he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to, them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So this happens again and again, that, that Jesus is confronting a false understanding of what God meant with the Sabbath. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. But, but there are those who, who say that the Sabbath has, has no bearing on, on the life of the New Testament Christian. It's only those laws that are repeated, they say, in the New Testament that, that have any role in the life of the believer. But they miss the fact that, that the Sabbath is actually in it is actually in the New Testament. We've already seen it in, in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. These people also, some of them will say that, that I'm not under the law of God or the, the law of Moses, they would say, but the law of Christ. Well, who is it that gave that law? Who is it that actually wrote the, the Ten Commandments with his own finger in stone? Yahweh, the pre-incarnate Christ. It is the law of Christ. And if you're wondering about that, look at Mark 2, verses 27 and 28. After the disciples had, had plucked and ate grain on the Sabbath, the Pharisees cons confronted Jesus, and so he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath created the Sabbath for man for his refreshment. He did not give it to be a burden, but as a blessing. 
furthermore, to say that we, we don't have to obey, to, to, to obey this, this, this law really creates a false dichotomy because, because God doesn't change. The morality of God does not change between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yes, the, the ceremonial laws have been completely fulfilled. They, they, all of, of what Jesus did in his, in his, his life and ministry and his sacrificial death which showed the fulfillment of the ceremonial law of, of God. But God's morality does not change. Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, this is one of the most important passages discussing God's covenant in the Old Testament. It deals with this, this, this issue. Please turn with me again if, there, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 31, 31. where the, the prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them uh, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant they broke, and, and so on. He says in verse 33, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. What law do you think it is that God wrote on their hearts? God's moral law, the, the Ten Commandments. And, and if you're thinking, well, that's just the New Testament, you need to, to look ahead to, to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, where, where this is quoted verbatim. It's quoted verbatim in the, the New Testament or the, the New Covenant. So again, God's moral law doesn't change. Yes, the, the ceremonial aspects have been fulfilled, but God's moral law continues. God's Sabbath still continues as a blessing for us to show us how God wants us to live. Spurgeon declared that, that God's law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us, nor the spirit which actuates us. He says the law is good and excellent if it keeps its place. So you understand what he's, he's saying here. He's saying the, the law is the road which guides us. This is known as, as Calvin's third use of the law. It, it's, as a, as, it's to help us understand what God wants us to do. Again, not, not to earn his favor. That's been accomplished for us in Christ. There's an understanding of, of, of how God wants us to live before him in this world. Now, finally, let's look at, at God's final deed that he does on the seventh day. Also in, in Genesis 2-3, God sanctified. God sanctified. You see that? So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. He made the day holy. Again, God's, God called the previous days good and very good, but, but he, this one is not only blessed, but it's also holy. He, he sets it apart for sacred use. God's Sabbath, then, as Kenneth Matthews explains, is not an aversion to labor, but the celebrative cessation of a completed work whereby he expresses his mastery over time by sanctifying it. God's saying, this is, this is my day. Now, of course, he owns every day. And we understand in the, in the New Covenant that, that all of life is meant to be worshipped. But this day alone is a day that God sanctifies. Now, as a pastor, I have the great privilege of, of being able to study God's Word full time. It's, it's a pleasure that very few in this, this church have. Now, now, I know that, that most, if not all of us, are, are in God's Word pretty much daily. 
and praying pretty much daily. But this gives you a day to, to, to focus on, on those things of, of God and to, to, to celebrate together with the people of God what God has done for us and what God will do for us in Christ. And with this, let's turn for a moment, for a moment to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, where we, we see that the first giving of the law on, on Sinai and this, this fourth commandment is, is talked about specifically here in verses uh, 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and God rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What do you see there in the very first word in that command? It says, Remember. Remember. So, so God's requirement of, of setting this day apart in obedience to him wasn't new any more than any of the other Ten Commandments weren't, were new. Again, the Ten Commandments reflect the moral will of God. If you, if you look in Exodus 16, just a couple of chapters before, you see that the manna was, was, collected on, was to be collected on the, on the sixth day and that they were to, to collect double so that there would be enough to, so they wouldn't have to gather on, on the Sabbath, on the Sunday. But this it's not even just an exodus. Again, the, the, the appeal in, in, is going back to creation. This is a creation ordinance. Moses grounds it in God's rest on that first seventh day. And, and this is really what, what has been, been held to for, for throughout most of the history of the church. Just, just read for, for, well, just listen to me for a moment as I read from the, the 1689 London Baptist Confession. As a law of nature, in that, general, uh, in that general proportion of time by God's appointment is to be set apart for the worship of God, so by his word in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him from which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. From the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as a Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe and holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, but are also taken up with the whole time in the public and private exercises of worship and the duties of necessity and mercy. That's the 689 Baptist Confession, almost 400 years old. We also, you can also find very similar statements in the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Savoy Declaration or the Heidelberg Catechism. And, and these all held that the day was changed from, from, sat, from uh, Saturday to Sunday to, to the day of, of the resurrection of our Lord, the first day of the week. And you can see in Acts that the church gathered together on the first day of the week. And, and yes, they gathered together pretty much every day, but there was something special when they gathered together to worship as the people of God, as the church. 
Again, this is not just, doesn't just originate in the 17th century. You could go back to the, the Didache, which is, which is either, either late first or early second century. 14.1, and on the Lord's day, gather to break bread and to give thanks after having confessed your offenses so that you may sacrifice and be pure. Also, many of the, the early church fathers held this view as well. Ignatius, who lived between A.D. 35 and died in A.D. 107, or, or Justin Martyr, who was, was beheaded sometime in the A.D. 160s, also believed that, that Sunday was a special day for worship of the Lord. But when we look at, at the culture around us, it, it's so easy to default to, to thinking, well, this is, the way it is now is the way it's always been. I mean, what other things would, would we get wrong if we took our cues from, from the culture around us? But as we go back, as we understand and throughout history, we, we, need, to, we need to look back and see what, what the church has historically believed. And again, not, not all exactly the same, but there was definitely a, a strong current running throughout church history of, of, a, of a celebration of the Sabbath. We need to be careful of, of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. The, the view that J.F. Packer said describes the spirit of the age where the newer is truer and only what is recent is decent and every shift of, of ground is a step forward and every latest word must be hailed as the last word on the subject. While newer might be better in cardiology and technology, it is rarely, if ever, good in theology. If somebody comes up with something new in theology, it's probably wrong. With God's resting and blessing and sanctifying of the seventh day, as explained in the Ten Commandments and as given in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, we see a celebration of God as creator and also of God as redeemer. And this is, is, is filled out for us in, in, Ex in Hebrews rather 3 and 4. We see that that rest was never meant to be an end unto itself, was meant, but was meant to point to, to not just back to creation, but also to the greater rest that we have in Jesus Christ. And so God and his creatures then share in the celebration of his good creation. And God's people are invited into that rhythm of, of work and rest. Embracing God's Sabbath helps us to look back at what God has done for us and to look ahead to what God will do for us, not just in creation, but also in redemption. It helps us to look forward to our glorification in the new heavens and the new earth in Christ. Let's pray together.